Hello and welcome to the RCP Medicine Podcast with me, Dr. Amy Burbridge. I'm an acute physician working in Coventry. And I'm Dr. Hussein Bashir. I'm a respiratory registrar in the Southeast. And today we are going to be looking at a case that I saw many years ago, but has some very valid learning points. So back when I was a rheumatology trainee, before I changed to acute medicine, I was an ST3. So I was pretty green around the girls. I have to say my knowledge of rheumatology was limited and I was asked to review a patient on the haematology ward. So this is Mrs. Taxus. She had been an inpatient for three weeks and had been admitted from the haematology outpatient department. She'd presented there with fever, night sweats, weight loss and generalised aches and pains. So over to you Hussein. what's your gut reaction possible diagnoses to those presenting complaints? Yeah, so there's some red flags there okay. already. So uh, the weight loss, night sweats, um, you think about a malignancy here. Um, I'd want to know a bit more about um, why she's a haematology outpatient. Uh, you know, has she had some abnormal blood tests um, or any markers that might, you know, suggest um, your differential diagnosis. But yeah, some concerning symptoms already. And you mentioned malignancy. What sort of malignancy is going through your mind? Um, so particularly with night sweats, lymphoma um, always comes to mind. Um, and uh, I suppose the leukemias as well. So AML, CML, uh, CLL as well. Okay, so it could, be, it could be anything at the time. In clinic, she had a temperature of 40 degrees. She was bed bound and felt awful. Now, interestingly, she had this left sternoclavicular mass, which was two centimetres by two centimetres. Does that change anything for you? Um, it points me into the direction of, of where we go. I mean, if it's a supraclavicular lymph node, um, it may be an easy biopsy site um, to give us Very an answer. Very good thought. I suppose it won't change too much. It, it, it almost leads more towards malignancy. So, okay, there's a mass here. Um, and with those symptoms, it, it would, yeah, push me in that direction further. There's something else that it sort of could be with the fever, the night sweats. Yeah, so yeah, so 40 degrees is quite a, yeah. a good going temperature. So you wonder whether there's an underlying infection here that may be, um, you know, she's been in, an inpatient for three weeks. Is it something that's been missed perhaps? Uh, and she may be getting sort of peaks and troughs um, throughout the night um, that's causing this. So yeah, is, is there a bit of fluid um, or a cyst or infected cyst perhaps? So TB, yes. it's important to rule out. Yeah, absolutely. So that's sort of thing that would be in the back of my mind. So we've got infection you mentioned, you mentioned malignancy. And now we need to think about where do we go from here and do we start to investigate? Now, before I went to see her, she'd received 10 days of broad-spectrum antibiotics. There was no improvement in her temperature and she still felt awful. Of note, she had a haemoglobin of 89, so pretty low, a platelet count of 591, so that's higher than we'd expect. Her CRP was significantly elevated at 267. Her alkaline phosphatase was high at 377, but interestingly, her white cell count and her neutrophil count was normal. Um, so yeah, she's obviously anemic, um, that 
can account for her feeling exhausted. Um, platelets may be a little bit high. Is it an acute phase sort of reaction? And um, ties in with the CRP, which is in triple figures as well. Um, the ALP is quite high. So I'm wondering, is that a reflection of something going on with the bones? Again, yeah. Perhaps metastasis or something like that. Um, yeah, but the white cell count is a little bit of a unusual one because you'd expect if she's had an infection that hasn't responded to antibiotics that the white cell count would still be elevated. Okay, so from the tests I've given you, are there any other tests that you think that she needs at the moment? Um, so you want to do some blood cultures when um, she's spiking temperatures. Um, I'd want to know what that left sternoclavicular mass is though. Um, I'd want to get some samples from that. So as we've discussed, you want to get uh, sort of TB sampling, um, standard MCNS, but also um, look for malignancy under that. Okay, so she actually had probably every single test that we offered at the time. So she had an echocardiogram, which was normal. She had a CT of a thorax, abdomen and pelvis. This revealed minor basal atelectasis. She had a bone marrow aspiratin trephine biopsy. And that was really because of the weight loss, the night sweats and this mass. And they were thinking along the lines that you mentioned of the lymphoma, lymphoma and the leukemia, absolutely normal. She had an ultrasound of the sternoclavicular mass, which showed joint edema and some soft tissue thickening. And this was aspirated, but it was actually sterile. There was nothing grown, bit of a diagnostic dilemma. Yeah, on the, on the one hand, uh, there's some reassuring evidence there. So if she's had a normal echocardiogram, um, you're probably less inclined to think um, about endocarditis. Are you? Well, yeah, so you need a TOE and, and, and et cetera, but... I think if if it was otherwise normal, yeah. um, it, it's slightly more reassuring. Makes it less likely, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. Um, similarly, the CT, so if we're looking for underlying malignancy, if there's no obvious primary site, um, that again is is slightly reassuring. I think the basal atelectasis, is, you're going to get that from someone who's been bed bound and an inpatient for uh, three weeks. The ultrasound is, again, reassuring. It hasn't come out as pus or you know any unusual colour, so um, maybe you're not too concerned about uh, an infected lymph node. Yeah. Um, but yes, a sort of differential diagnosis dilemma. Yes. Do you have a structure as to how you can identify when you're in an area of uncertainty as to how you can work through possible diagnoses? Yeah, I mean, it's it's kind of a systems-based approach that I normally take. And okay. um, for my limited experience as a registrar with these complex cases, it's it's always revisiting the history. Um, because sometimes there are things that, you know, through no one's fault, either patients or the clinicians, things just get missed, missed out um, yes. or maybe questions don't get interpreted in the right way. Um, I'm thinking niche things like travel history, family history, those kind of things. It's always worth revisiting. Yes. And Osler famously said, listen to your patient. They are telling you the diagnosis. And I think we often forget that when we go and review patients, we often take too much into account of what's previously been told and don't retake the history. And actually, you can find out a wealth of knowledge. Yeah. And I, I reckon you've probably, you've probably told me something already that I should have picked up on, but I have a feeling I've fallen for the red flags because 
as clinicians, we do have a sort of safety first approach, you know, rule out the worst case scenario. Yeah, and we have to have that, don't we? Yeah. But sometimes it's always worth revisiting the history, and that is exactly what I did. So I was, as I said, a very new trainee in rheumatology, and I knew that ANA and ANCA were very important, but that was really about the <laughs> limits of my knowledge. So I went back to basics and I found out more. And on taking the history, I found that the weight loss and the night sweats all began around two months prior to admission. She complained of difficulty mobilising. She was unable to raise her arms above her head. And if she did, it was very, very painful to do so. Her muscles were tender, mainly in the shoulder region. She had joint swelling and early morning stiffness. And the joint swelling was actually mainly in her hands, but also in her knees. She'd lost her appetite, she'd lost some weight, and she'd had some night sweats as well. So what are your thoughts now? Does that change things? Yeah, so it's particularly the sort of physical musculoskeletal symptoms. It it sounds more like a rheumatological condition. Um, You know, you're thinking maybe polymyositis um, or something along those lines. Um, It sounds like they've got some girdle pain, so, you know, difficulty raising arms. Uh, I don't know if they had difficulty <coughs> getting out of a chair. Um, obviously, she's very tired and relatively bedbound because of because of a multitude of symptoms. Absolutely. Um, and yes, yeah, so fever as well can sometimes be associated with rheumatoid conditions. So examination-wise, her BMI was eighteen. So a body mass index of 18, you'd expect it to be 20 or above is within normal limits, so it was low. Her temperature fluctuated between 39 and 40 degrees. Her pulse was 120 beats per minute and it was regular. Her respiratory rate was 20. She had this non-tender mass palpable in the sternoclavicular joints. She had bilateral knee effusions. She had weak shoulder abductors and there was visible muscle wasting. And she was very tender on palpation of the upper arm muscles and she was unable to get out of bed. So, as somebody who was relatively new to the specialty, I still didn't really know what was going on. So I had this checklist that I, a consultant I was working with at the time gave me, which is, I find a very useful sort of tool to use and it's called vitamin D. Okay. So each of the letters looks at a possible cause for the symptoms. So V stands for vascular, venous. So is there anything vascular, venous, that could be causing this condition in the patient? So could it be an underlying vasculitis? Eye is infection. We've mentioned TB. You've mentioned infective endocarditis. T is trauma. She's had no history of trauma that we know of. A is an autoimmune condition. So Many autoimmune conditions would fit in here, including hyper or hypothyroidism. Do we need to check her thyroid function? Could this be uh, another endocrinopathy, such as Addison's disease? She's lost a lot of weight. She's had some unusual sort of lumps and bumps. Is there something else going on, sort of a metabolic bone disease that we need to look at? Do we need to look at her vitamin D levels? Again, is this a M stands for metabolic conditions. So again, looking at her vitamin D levels. 
I is iatrogenic. Is this something that we've caused in this patient? Have we given her a medication? Has she been on anything from the GP? Has she been taking anything over the counter that could have possibly led to it? N is neoplasm. So again, you mentioned underlying malignancies. And D is drugs. So again, is this anything that we've been giving her or that she's been taking? I find that it's really important to ask patients not only what the GP is giving them, but also what they take over the counter, including herbal remedies. And in my last job, I noticed that a lot of people started to order medication off the internet. Mm. So it's always worth asking and buying medications from an online pharmacy. So having worked through all those, we aspirated her knee fusions. We got 100 mils of clear synovial fluid. There was no uric crystals and there was no calcium pyrophosphate crystals. So gout was unlikely. There was no infection. So septic arthritis was very unlikely. And we mainly saw reactive cells. So there was a small rise in the white cell count. Yeah, so you're thinking, again, you've, you've ruled out a, a couple of those uh, things that you've gone through on the checklist already from that aspiration. Um, you think there's some inflammatory condition going here. So um, whether that's an arthropathy, uh, whether it's an autoimmune condition that's attacking muscles and joints. Um, so I'd probably have a think about more uh, blood tests um, to confirm. Any particular blood tests that you might want to do for somebody you think's got polymyalgia, polymyositis? So you want to do an autoantibody screen. Okay. And what, what would you be looking for in particular for polymyalgia rheumatica? Um, so you're looking for anti-rolar, anti-double-stranded DNA? No. So I think that's really important, and I agree that we need to do the antibody screen, but it's to rule out other conditions. So there is no particular autoantibody for polymyalgia rheumatica. So you go by your clinical picture that you've got and your elevated C-reactive protein and elevated erythrocyte sedimentation rate. We'd expect that to be elevated. They can often be anemic as well, which our lady was. And occasionally they have a raised alkaline phosphatase as well. And a ferritin may be elevated because it's an acute phase reactant. You're absolutely right though. You'd want to look at the antibody screen because occasionally rheumatoid arthritis can present in a similar fashion, particularly in the elderly population. So by doing your anti-CCP or cyclic citrullated peptide antibodies, that would help to rule that out. And again, you mentioned anti-rho, anti-lar, double-stranded DNA. So that will look at lupus and Sjogren's syndrome. So absolutely really important. So we did an ESR, we did a CRP, and they were very, very high. And given the fact that everything else has sort of been ruled out at this stage, we plumped for the diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica. So I'm going to talk to you a little bit about polymyalgia rheumatica. And there was a guideline released in 2015 by the American College of Rheumatology, which looks at the recommendations for the management of polymyalgia rheumatica. And this was made in conjunction with the European League Against Rheumatism, or EULAR as it's also known. The British Society of Rheumatology do have a guideline as well, which is used, and that was published in 2009, but it remains current. And they do actually say on their website that they, you can still utilise that and also the new American College of Rheumatology guidelines as well. So, um, a little bit about polymyalgia. Um, a patient will often present with proximal pain or stiffness, which is what our individual did. And it's often predominantly shoulder and uh, the pelvic girdle or the thigh symptoms. 
Um, they usually are over the age of 50. And below that, you really need to be thinking about other conditions that could possibly be causing the symptomatology. If you've got um, weakness of the muscles and you do a creatine kinase, you mentioned polymyositis as a possibility. So if this creatine kinase is very high, we're talking in the thousands, you are probably going to be thinking about polymyositis and dermatomyositis, which has other specific signs and symptoms, which we will discuss in a later episode. It could be an arthritis, it could be a septic arthritis, given the fact that she had the sternoclavicular mass and the knee effusions, but we've actually ruled that out as well. Make sure you rule out simple things as well, like rotator cuff injuries or adhesive capsulitis, frozen shoulder, because again, that can sometimes present in very similar fashion. You talked about infection, we talked about malignancies, myeloma, we didn't mention actually, so it's important to also look at that. Um, that we need to look at. So, when you've got somebody who you think's got polymyalgia, your core inclusion criteria as set up by the guidelines are the patient has to be over the age of 50. They have to have morning stiffness for more than 45 minutes. Usually quite an abrupt onset. So, the more insidious onset over months, sometimes years, you get people coming in with these type of symptoms, it would be less likely to be polymyalgia. Uh, the duration is often, uh, would last when you see them two, three, four weeks, and they will often have that raised ESR and that raised CRP, and again, the shoulder and the girdle pain that we discussed. It's unlikely to be polymyalgia if they have cancer, infection, if they have rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, fibromyalgia, osteoarthritis. Although, here comes dictum, patients can have as many diseases as they damn well please. So just because they have one disease, it doesn't mean they can't get another. So always bear that in mind. So you've got your patient with polymyalgia. A few things to be aware of that you want to make sure you think that it's not polymyalgia is if they're young, which we mentioned. Again, if there's a lack of shoulder involvement, so really to be polymyalgia, they do have to have shoulder involvement. Peripheral arthritis, if they have spinal involvement. If they have spinal involvement, is this a late onset spondyloarthropathy that hasn't been picked up? If they're male, um, it is, it, they, they do have polymyalgia, but it's more common in women. If they have very severe constitutional symptoms, so huge amounts of weight loss, night sweats, appetite, Yes, it could, could be polymyalgia, but you don't want to go for that diagnosis straight away and think about your malignancies and your infections. If they have a normal CRP or a normal ESR, think about something else. And if their CRP ESR is hugely raised, 300s, 400s, think about infections, malignancy. And when you start to treat them, if they have a poor response to steroids, particularly low-dose steroids, you really need to probably start rethinking the diagnosis. Talking about steroids, how are you going to treat Mrs. Taxus? Yeah, so obviously this is an inflammatory type condition. So you would consider steroids uh, either um, enterally or as an injection. Um, but I suppose with something that's so systemic, so it's not just one site, it's, it's you know, multiple joints, it's, you're probably going to go for the um, oral steroid option. Yeah, so what patients might you not use oral steroids in just in general population? Um, or in the patients that you might see in a hospital? So if they've got any uh, risk factors, if they've got 
uh, sort of stomach disease, if they've got any diabetes, history of diabetes, um, anything that steroids could potentially make worse because it's got a, quite a high um, side effect profile already. And some people just don't tolerate oral steroids, mm. um, and particularly if they forget to take them. Or and so sometimes it may be that you use a different form of steroids, so intramuscular steroids, because they're not very good at taking medication. So it's always worth thinking about, particularly if you have an older patient who maybe has an element of cognitive decline, lives alone. You may really want to think about what's best for them in that particular stage, because treatment for polymyalgia is steroids. Absolutely. And the British Society of Rheumatology and the later guidelines in 2015 suggest that you start at a low dose of steroids, 12.5 milligrams to 50 milligrams once a day. Don't go in with huge doses, 40, 50, 60 milligrams, unless they've had visual symptoms and you're thinking about giant cell arteritis, which is again something that we'll cover in a later episode. 50 milligrams of steroids, but... What are the side effects of the risks of giving steroids? Yeah, so you want to look out for infection. Um, and again, this is sort of a, a grey area with this case because they may have presented, you know, Absolutely. what we thought with, with yes. an infection. Um, you've got your GI side effects. So you want to make sure that they've got some PPI cover. Um, even if it's a low dose, but if you're thinking about a long-term course of steroids, you want to make sure they've got some bone protection, um, particularly with that. <laughs> age profile um, so if they're above 50 predominantly female you worry about osteoporosis yeah. um, if they're already a little bit immobile or have difficulties mobilizing you want to make sure they don't uh, they're not at further risk of crush fractures um, you know one fall that's could, a really good thought absolutely um, yeah cause them some trouble and then yeah. um, she's already in hematology outpatient so you think about those effects you know bruising um, uh, things to look out for. Yes, yeah, so you start with your steroids, you're right, you had a proton pump inhibitor. Again, they do come with their own side effect profile as well. So you may want to think about if a patient's been a long-term PPI, occasionally they can get a rebound acid reflux. So sometimes ranitidine is utilized as a different drug, and yet you're right, you give bisphosphonate protection, plus vitamin D and calcium medication as well. Now it's really important that you tell your patient how to tell the bisphosphonate, take the bisphosphonate. So what do you tell them? Uh, so it's first thing in the morning, um, you've got to be upright, um, preferably before food. Yeah. Um, that's all I can remember. Yeah, so before food and you want to allow it for about 30 minutes before you eat your breakfast. And again, that is something that sometimes patients do forget, it's something that I would forget. Um, so it's quite difficult. So you have to be very clear on discharge, on your instructions as to what you actually have to do with all the tablets. So the steroid usage is normally for one year. Every, you aim, you want to get to about 10 milligrams at about week four to week eight. So you try and reduce your steroids by about one milligram per week and aim to get down at about eight weeks to 10 milligrams. And then you can reduce by one milligram per month. Now, a lot of people who do have polymyalgia they get to the 12 months and they may have a relapse. The risk of having relapses is the use of long-term steroids. So long-term steroids have many complications. So what would you be worried about if you're on them for a very long time? Um, so you're worried if they're at risk of developing Cushing syndrome. Um, and then they could develop long-term endocrinological problems, so diabetes, yeah. um, etc. cetera. Um, and then you'd also be worried about abrupt withdrawal 
Um, so say if their prescription run out or for whatever reason it was stopped for, you know, without being consulting their general physician, um, what about them having possibly an Addison's crisis? Yes, absolutely. And then they can become hypertensive. They can gain huge amounts of weight, sleep difficulties, psychosis. Yeah. Cataract development, they are endless, so you have to be really cautious. And some patients don't tolerate them. And certainly at 12 months, you want to think about, do I need to use a sterile alternative? And a possible is methotrexate. As yet, there's been no other disease-modifying drug that has been found to be effective in polymyalgia. There's some evidence of leflunamide that may be a possibility, but this is something that only rheumatologists should be prescribing at this stage. I wouldn't expect... A general practitioner or a general physician, unless they've had some rheumatology experience to be prescribing these medications. You did mention intramuscular steroids. So yeah, there was a paper many years ago which looked at the use of intramuscular steroids or depo, uh, a depot of methylprednisolone. And again, that is a possibility. And you mentioned depomedrone injections. And again, yes, that is there was a paper released quite a few years ago now that did suggest that depot methylprednisolone could be used as an alternative two steroids. There is a really interesting form of polymyalgia that um, is occasionally seen. I remember seeing it probably my second year as a rheumatology reg and it stuck with me because it was quite specific and it was the patient who had bilaterally swollen hands. They looked like boxers gloves and they were actually called boxers hands. Right. Does that ring a bell? Um, So I mean... I think when you think about enlarged swollen hands, the first thing that comes to my mind is acromegaly. Um, yes. I think Good thought. if it was unilateral, you'd think about something, you know, that V of your surgical sieve. Is it venous? Is there an occlusion somewhere? But for bilateral hands, is yeah, an unusual it's one. Unusual, isn't it? So there is a condition called RS3P which stands for remitting seronegative symmetrical synovitis with pitting edema. And this is when you have your bilateral hand edema with some polymyalgic type symptoms. And it was first described in 1985. So actually, it's a relatively recent disease. It's a rare syndrome, and it's a seronegative symmetrical polyarthritis. So you won't have that positive rheumatoid factor or that positive CCP antibodies that you mentioned, but you will have the raised ESR and CRP. Again, the edema is usually very sudden onset, associated with morning stiffness in the hands, and they often have very similar rapid response to lower dose corticosteroids. So if you do have that older patient with bilaterally swollen hands, think about RS3PE. It's rare, but you never know. It could be that. So, just as another learning point about polymyalgia that was discussed in the new, updated American College of Rheumatology guidelines, and they start to talk about imaging in polymyalgia. Now, certainly since I qualified to now, we use imaging a lot more, particularly ultrasound. Is that something that you've noticed? Yeah, I think um, particularly for general physicians that do the acute take, it's more expected that you know, people coming through will have some skills um, at least to identify um, sort of basic stuff. But I think to look for joint swelling and those kind of things is is a specialist 
Certainly beyond my remit. Yes, certainly something I'd be doing. But it does say that all new polymyalgia should have ultrasound of their shoulder and their hips. That's not something I have to say that I practice at the moment because we don't have the availability of that number of scans. But it's something that we probably need to start thinking about, particularly if we, there is some diagnostic uncertainty about the condition. Obviously, the imaging for other conditions, the CTs and the echoes, which we would do anyway. Again, you might want to do an MRI spine if you're thinking about a spondyloarthropathy. And you may want to do a MRA, so a magnetic resonance imaging of the arteries or a PET scan if you're thinking about a large vessel vasculitis. Um, your GCAs, that may be picked up on scan. It's really important to think about, again, we don't necessarily have to do it at the moment, but it's always worth bearing in mind. Yeah. And you, you caught me out actually earlier when you were asking about what blood tests I do. You know, it's important that if you're doing tests to rule out things, actually imaging comes into play so I can rule in things. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. yeah. So it's all about taking that differential diagnostic list, your vitamin D, and thinking about what tests do you need to do to rule in and rule out each of those conditions. And I always find it helpful to rank them in order of what is most likely to least likely. If you want to summarize and give me your learning points then, Hussein. Yeah, so um, it's a really interesting case actually, and it, it highlights um, both the science behind uh, polymyositis and polymyalgia rheumatica. It was nice to recap what investigations you do do um, to rule out other causes uh, and what other investigations um, you'll do to rule in uh, certain differentials. Um, I think the sort of conundrum aspect, um, you know, going back to your surgical sieve to make sure that you've covered everything, uh, particularly as this cohort of patients um, are complex, they may already have existing medical problems um, and, uh, you know, may have uh, drug history, medication history. Um, I was reassured that the demographics are mainly for over 50 year olds because sometimes I do have sort of muscle aches and joint pains, but it's probably just a bit of wear and tear. <laughs> I think you've got polymyalgia. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask you though, because ultimately this patient had probably quite a tough time being an inpatient for a few weeks. Absolutely. Um, what What did you say to the patient in terms of why you're doing these tests? Um, because you, you didn't really have an answer straight away. No, it was very difficult and she was actually quite angry not at me, but at the system that she'd been in hospital for so long, wasn't getting any better. Didn't really feel like she'd been getting any answers to the questions that she'd been asking. And we often forget that when patients are in hospital for two, three weeks, they're getting really bored as well, really fed up, particularly when they're not feeling very well. So I explained to her who I was, did some more tests, examined her, went and spoke to my senior consultant, and we went back. And I told her that I thought this was a possible diagnosis of polymyalgia rheumatica. I apologised for the length she'd been in hospital. And she acknowledged that she knew she had to be in hospital for that long. Although she was cross, it was, it's one of those things that can happen. And sometimes we have to be comfortable with diagnostic uncertainty because we don't know the answer to everything. Sometimes it takes a long time for us to reach a diagnosis. And I think as clinicians, we feel like we have to be able to give a diagnosis straight away. And within a few days, even a few hours, a few minutes sometimes. Many reasons for that. Sometimes patients expect that of us, but also there's often bed pressure and a pressure to move patients on very quickly through the department. 
also though, sometimes we have to say to the patients, I actually don't know what's going on. And sometimes it's best to just watch and wait and not to go in and do loads of tests and just see what happens. Yeah, I think I'd, I'd echo that. I think there's, there's a balance between um, not jumping to conclusions too soon, uh, providing guesses or wrong information, but there's also a need to be transparent, um, particularly with the patient, um, obviously. But I can just imagine for her, you know, being told, you know, we've got to look out for TB, or we've got to rule out malignancy, and then, oh, you've got this condition which you may need steroids for a year. It's, it's, it's confusing for clinicians, let alone a patient who may not, yes. not know the ins and outs. Well, that's a everything. very good point. And you say when we jump to conclusions to make diagnoses, when we do make diagnoses, we use so many cognitive biases in our decision-making. And that is something that we will be discussing in an upcoming podcast. And I think it's something that we need to talk about more within clinical medicine. The story ended with us prescribing 50 milligrams of steroids to Mrs. Taxus. And within 48 hours, her temperature had settled and she got out of bed and she felt a lot, lot better. It was really, really reassuring and reaffirming that, you know, sometimes we do make a difference. Fabulous. Thank you very much for bringing that case today. Thank you for listening to the RCP Medicine Podcast. If you want to get in touch, email us at podcasts at rcplondon.ac.uk or tweet us at rcplondon. And we look forward to hearing from you. Goodbye.